I mentioned earlier, uh, we have just a special time uh, today to kind of take a break from the book of Revelation. And I know it's an odd place, right? We just had the second coming of Jesus. We just studied the millennial reign, getting right into the great white throne judgment. There's really no pause there as you're reading the text. But the way it all falls on the calendar and what we have planned over the next month Um, We're going to just take a a moment today to prepare our hearts for for something that has been a regular part of the DNA, uh, not only of uh, the Church of the New Testament um, and uh, the faithful saints who even came before Christ, but uh, it's it's been a part of our DNA as a church, and that is a corporate fast that we do here at the church uh, that takes place during uh, the week, um, at least one week every spring. And so last week was, uh, last year was a bit of an anomaly, although we did have times of corporate uh, prayer and fasting. It just didn't look as normal. But we are entering into here shortly um, our 10th week long corporate fast that we've been through uh, here at Calvary Prineville. And uh, it's been through these times that we have seen the Lord move in our midst in a way that is on these biblical scales that just cause your jaw to drop. And some of the most incredible things are just the way that he has taken lukewarm, cold, sinful hearts and made them burn hot for Jesus. Uh, that he has caused people who are in bondage to sin and sinful struggles and bad habits, and he's purged those things out of us as we have sought his face. And so uh, you're going to want to mark your calendar for the Monday through Friday before Easter. Uh, That's the 6th through the 10th, um, because we are going to be fasting as a church and we're going to be meeting in the same way that we're meeting during the Nepal trip three times a day, 6 a.m., noon, and 6 p.m. for corporate prayer and Bible reading. And uh, these have always been some of the most rich, sweet, powerful times we've ever had as a church. I'm so excited for you. If you're new to Calvary, don't get up and leave yet. This is like some exciting stuff. If you'll just go to the Bible with me, these have been some of the most exciting times we've had as a church. Um, and as it's been said here, they really set the tone for our year as a church. We kind of consider the week of fasting and prayer here at Calvary to be like New Year's Day. For us, it's you know, we kind of just hit the reset button and come before the Lord and just lay our lives and our ministry and our vision and just everything down at the foot of God, and we just let Him have His way with us and get us set again for um, the year and for the year 2020 this year. Now, some people are you know, uh, concerned that we fast. Some people think it's weird, that it's freaky deaky, you know, that it's something that only monks do, you know, monks fast. That's something that they do as they're living up in their bohemian villages with their Martin Luther haircut and their brown, you know, camel skin robes. Um, Some people may know more of the Hare Krishna version of the fast, or you may have recalled learning about Gandhi in high school and the hunger strike uh, and the fasting that he implemented there. But if you were to study the gospels, Jesus didn't have to tell his disciples that fasting was a normal thing. For them, it was normal. To us Americans in the Western world, fasting has become strange. Even as Christians, we don't know many people who fast. Or the ones that do, they're just a little bit weird. Am I right? Myself included, for sure. And we don't know what to think. But if we want to be biblical Christians... We ought to expect fasting to be a regular part of our religious experience, and we ought to cast off a fasting phobia. Anybody here want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Anybody here? You're just like, I'll raise my hand to that. I want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Well, disciple happens to be the root word in discipline, okay? Discipline. To be a disciple requires discipline. John Piper said, not doing some things you feel like doing is the daily pattern for the disciples of Jesus, said that in 2012. Would you say that that's something that's New Testament and biblical? Not doing something that you feel like doing is the regular pattern for disciples of Jesus. And yes, it's a daily thing. Look in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So if you want to follow Jesus, you want to be a disciple, then daily you need to deny self. You need to take up that that wooden implement, you know, in a in a metaphorical sense, sometimes in a literal sense of of really torture and self-denial and pain and follow Jesus daily. You know, in the resurrection that we studied about last week in the heaven where Jesus is ruling and reigning on this earth, there will be no self-denial for us as resurrected Christians because we will not have to walk in that sinful or foolish temptation anymore. We won't have those foolish, selfish, sinful desires anymore. But today we do. Today, it's a part of our regular life. And Paul the Apostle would regularly preach of self-discipline and self-denial. In Acts 24, 25, Galatians 5, 23, Titus 1, 8, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, and maybe one of the most famous that would come to your mind is 1 Corinthians 9, 27. And listen to what he says. Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Okay, so Paul the Apostle says regularly, I discipline my body. So we want to be disciples. Discipleship requires discipline. Lest after we're going to Nepal and going to Polina and going around Prineville and preaching the gospel and ministering and doing We Got the Light and all of these great things, we somehow drifted away even in the midst of all of that and find ourselves disqualified that term i give uh, i discipline my body in the greek is literally translated i give my body a black eye have you ever known anyone to just give themselves a good old black eye you know well paul the apostle did i give myself a black eye and then he goes on to say and i make it a slave. I make it a slave. And so as Christians, that's part of the regular Christian experience. Now let me just ask you, is that something that describes your Christianity? Disciplining yourself, giving yourself the black eye and making yourself the slave of Christ. Richard Foster said in his research on fasting, he said, in my research, as far as I know, there was not a single full-length book on the subject of fasting from 1861 to 1954, a period of almost 100 years. Now what would account for such an almost total disregard of a discipline so frequently mentioned in Scripture and so ardently practiced by Christians throughout the centuries? Man, 1861 to 1954, nobody's talking about fasting. Nobody's writing about fasting. It's something that was really tossed to the side for nearly a century And for the last uh, 12 years that I've been regularly fasting, uh, I've done a lot of research. And in that research, it's very difficult to find good material on fasting. One guy says, what causes this lack of interest or concern for fasting? Says two things at least. Number one, there was a reaction, and rightly so, to ascetic 
ascetic, ex, excessive ascetic practices, which means too much like religiosity and trying to be an ascetic or trying to be a monk because of the Middle Ages. But secondly, he says that there's been a developing, prevailing philosophy that literally dominates the American culture, including the American religious culture, that it is a positive virtue to satisfy literally every human passion. So why do we see not so much fasting happening these days? Uh, well, because, you know, we don't want to be like the ascetics, okay? I mean, that seems like way extreme. But also, we're buying in even to the American mentality that it's all for our consumption. The more, the better. The more pleasure, the more toys, the more food, the more, you know, as fast as I can get it. You know, uh, one guy attributed it to golden arches on every single corner. It's really hard to fast when you can just go anywhere and get anything as fast as you want and when you want. But indeed, it's the Christian experience to be a disciple who disciplines themselves. In Romans 8, 13, Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the flesh or you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And it's through the practice of fasting along with other things, prayer, worship, fellowship, being in the word, confession of sin, all of these things, fasting is one of the most powerful tools that we use to mortify our flesh, to put our flesh in its proper order, to bring it into submission, to make it disciplined, to give it the black eye, to slap our flesh and say, you're not the boss, body. You yield to someone greater. Let me introduce you to Jesus. That's what these times of fasting are, killing our sin. One man wrote, make no mistake, sexual desires are not your most deadly desires that need daily denial. Anger, rage, resentment, fear of man, discouragement, self-pity, self-promotion, Hardness, envy, moodiness, sulking, indifference to suffering, laziness, boredom, passiveness, lack of praise, lack of joy in Jesus, disinterest in others. These things need daily killing. And through fasting, you put them in their right place. And so as we look at fasting today, we look at a prescription given by our heavenly doctor to see how to sow to the spirit, how to by the spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, how to use this weapon that's been given to us by the commander of the Lord's army, how our God has shown us a paramount avenue to step into the power, into the intimacy, into the healing that's available for his children. Adabert de Vogue was a Benedictine monk who had rigorously fasted for decades. He wrote a book uh, entitled To Love Fasting, and it tends to jar people with its title, To Love Fasting, where he wrote, Fasting was no longer a constraint and a penance for me, but a joy and a need of body and soul. I practiced it spontaneously because I loved it. He was a man who would go to come to know fasting in a New Testament sense that longs for the bridegroom's coming. Now, what is this fasting that you speak of, Rory? What is it? It's easy to speak of fasting when the stomach is full. This is a great sermon today. Uh, fasting, blah, 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 blah. I had waffles and Traeger bacon for breakfast. I'm expecting something great for lunch. <laughs> and we'll probably have that left over for dinner. Okay. It's easy to speak of fasting when the stomach is full. 
One of my good friends, Pastor Sandy Adams from the Calvary in Stone Mountain, Georgia, wrote an email uh, to our church in Corvallis while we were preparing for fasting, and uh, he misspelt the word fasting with the word fatting. It totally was an accident. And he realized he made the mistake, and he sent a reply with his quick-witted southern humor, and he wrote, fatting? Now that's my kind of fasting, right? So we do fasting a little different around here. Charles Spurgeon had a sermon that he titled, A Desperate Case and How to Meet It. He delivered it January 10th, 1864. And he wrote, and what is fasting for? That seems the difficult point. It is evidently practiced oftentimes by our Lord and advised to him by his, uh, advised by him to his disciples, not a kind of religious observance in itself meritorious, but a habit when associated with the exercise of prayer, unquestionably helpful. I'm not sure whether we've lost a very great blessing in the Christian church by giving up fasting. Then he's going to go to talk about Martin Luther. He says, Martin Luther, whose body, like some others, was of a gross tendency, felt as some of us do, that in our flesh there dwelleth no good thing. In another sense than the apostle meant it, and he used to fast frequently. He says his flesh was wont to grumble dreadfully at abstinence, but fast he would, for he found that when he was fasting, it quickened his praying. Anybody here just struggle with praying and it's just kind of dull and dreary and distracted and, you know, spontaneous at best and, or, or, or lacking uh, man, when you're fasting, it quickens your praying. He says, there's a treatise by an old Puritan called, quote, the soul fattening institution of fasting. And he gives us his own experience that during a fast, he has felt more intense eagerness of soul in prayer than he'd ever done at any other time. Spurgeon says, some of you, dear friends, may get to the boiling point in prayer without fasting. I do think that others cannot. And there's so much in that, that Spurgeon quote, man, everything from when Martin Luther would fast, it would quicken his soul to praying, or that uh, the Puritan titled his sermon, a soul fattening institution of fasting. It's something that actually gives us great health of soul and that uh, during a fast we can feel more intense eagerness of our soul in prayer that we would at any other time. Scott McKnight wrote that fasting is the natural inevitable response of a person to a grievous sacred moment in life. And so McKnight really writes about how um, sometimes fasting just, it naturally happens and you don't even mean to. And many of you have probably been there. You're going through a tragedy. You're going through marital problems. You're going through a divorce. You know, you're going through uh, a loss of a loved one. Uh, those kinds of things just cause you to go to the Lord and cry out to him. And you find that, you know what? I'm just not even hungry. I don't even need food, but I do need God. Fasting is a response to God's love and to his grace. Matthew chapter 4 verse 4, Jesus says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is essentially communicating back to the devil during his temptation here that the ultimate point is that we don't need bread we need God. These times of fulfilling hunger and fasting are fulfilling because communion with God takes place in them. And communion with God is only possible because Christ has redeemed us. In John chapter 6, verses 47 through 58, 
Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Cannibalism. Ew. It's basically what they're saying. And Jesus says, most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up in the last day for my flesh is food indeed. And my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So is he who feeds on me. He'll live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. He's speaking of communion. Communion speaks of, it's the same word as fellowship, abiding with Jesus. And so when he's talking about this communion-esque experience here of abiding in him and feasting on what he's done, as what 1 John 1, 2 and 4 through 4 would say, that communion was made possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. Communion with Jesus satisfies our deepest hunger. It satisfies our deepest hunger. A message on fasting is not superfluous or redundant to us. We haven't gotten there yet. Uh, You know, it's something that we need to hear regularly. The Bible talks about fasting dozens and dozens of times, over 70 times times. Let me give you just a real simple, simplistic definition of fasting. Fasting is denying the physical to seek the spiritual. Okay? Denying the physical to seek the spiritual. It's saying, God, I'm denying the physical food because, God, I'm more hungry for you. Food, don't need it as much as I need you, Lord. There's a transposing that happens. It takes a physical longing that we have, and it transposes it to a spiritual key. It takes a just as I hunger and transposes it to I long for you. It says, take my stomach And make it a longer, a longer for God. And sometimes we only fast just to prove we're not living on bread alone. John Piper said, fasting is an expression of a longing for God with hunger. It's not just saying, I long for you. It shows I'm longing for you. One great book that I would recommend is God's Chosen Fast by Arthur Wallace. It's a little booklet, really. It's great. It's one of the best books on fasting that I've read, and, uh, and it's an easy read. So you might Amazon it. It's probably like two bucks. It'll be here tomorrow, and, uh, and it'll help. Uh, I read it during my first week-long fast, and it was just so rich and so good. But Wallace says, when someone does not like the meaning of something in the Bible, they are tempted to spiritualize it and so rob it of its cutting edge. It can no longer cut. In the main, this is what the professing church, the evangelicals have done with the biblical teaching on fasting. To fast, we are told, is not only to abstain from food, but anything that hinders our communion with God. Or they'll say, fasting means to do without, or the practice of self-denial. But then Wallace says, 
we have only to widen the meaning enough and the cutting edge is gone. It is true that there are many things that hinder our communion with God and many things that we need to practice self-denial. But the fact still remains that to fast means not to eat. Andrew Murray, who wrote the book With Christ in the School of Prayer, wrote, uh, wrote, fasting helps to express and to deepen and to confirm the resolution that we are willing to sacrifice anything, to sacrifice ourselves to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. I'm not just saying I long for you. I'm showing a hunger for God. In just another chapter in our Revelation series, we're going to be in 21.6, where Jesus says to John, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He quenches the thirst that we have in our souls with the water of life. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. And so we see that there's something deeper and more satisfying to our inner thirsts and cravings and our hungers and that it's free. We can come by it without money and without price. Are you what would be called a satisfied Christian? Now, it sounds good at first, right? Like, yeah, satisfied kind of a trick question. See, someone who, what we would call a satisfied Christian, is in a danger if they find their satisfaction in work, homes, hobbies, even continuing on in the status quo religious observances. You see, a Christian should always be crying out, more, more of you, Lord, more of you in my life, more of you in my family, more of you in my holiness, more of you in my hobbies, more of you in my behavior. You're actually a sick person if you are content where you're at in your Christianity. John Piper says that God rewards fasting because it is the cry of our heart that nothing in this world can satisfy but him. He must reward this cry because he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In John chapter 4, verse 31, the disciples urged Jesus to eat. In the meantime, the disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, which you do not know. For the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus says to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word of God. And Jesus kind of kicks it to another notch and also says, hey, our food is also to do the will of the Lord and to finish his work. May the Holy Spirit awaken us to understand how important and how vital desiring that kind of food is to our Christianity. Do you desire a deeper, more intimate, powerful relationship with the Lord? Are you in need of a healing or a miracle? Do you need the tender touch of God in your life? Is there a vision inside you that you know only God can make a reality? Are you in need of a fresh encounter and a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit? Do you want a heightened sensitivity to the leading of God in your daily life? Do you need to break away from bondages that have been holding you hostage? Is there a friend or a loved one that needs salvation? Do you want to know God's will for your life? 
then respond to God in these desperate things with fasting. Six things real quick that help us understand what fasting is. Number one, fasting is a means of humbling oneself in the sight of God. And so it's really good regularly to spend time fasting and to come on our face before the Lord and just humble ourselves before him. Confess our sins, confess our weakness, confess our inadequacy, confess our poverty of spirit and his absolute wealth and treasures of the spirit for us. It's a way of humbling ourselves. Maybe you're just a really prideful person. You're kind of haughty. And you know what? The Lord would just say, man, I just want you to just spend some time humbling yourself before me. Number two, fasting is directly connected with connected with direction and knowing which way we should go. Fasting, number three, is directly connected with insight and revelation from God. With fasting, number four, comes God's divine intervention in the Bible. Fasting, number five, is a spiritual weapon that is mighty in God for pulling down strongholds that otherwise wouldn't come down. Arthur Wallace writes in God's Chosen Fast, in giving us the privilege of fasting as well as praying, God has added a powerful weapon to our armory. In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked upon it as obsolete, and she has thrown it into some dark corner to rust, and there it has laid for centuries. An hour of impending crisis for the church and the world demands its recovery. I don't believe that's a word for us. You know, I think all of these are, and we're going to kind of quickly go through each one with some scripture. But, uh, but man, it's time to bring out that rusty sword that, you know, we've just kind of tossed in the back because it's uncomfortable and it doesn't fill our pleasures. And we bring it out and clean it off and let it be used in power the way that God's designed for us. The sixth and final thing here, fasting with a pure heart and a right motive can provide us with a key to unlock doors where other keys have failed. So what a shame that fasting is a subject that's gone neglected by most Christians, but really totally undiscovered by others. In the Old Testament, Abraham's servant fasted when he was seeking a bride for Isaac. Moses fasted 40 days with no food, no water, twice on Mount Sinai. Hannah, when she was praying for a child, David on several occasions, even fasting for his sick enemies, fasting for his sick child. Elijah fasted over a victory of over uh, Jezebel. That was a 40-day total fast. Ezra, when he was mourning over Israel's faithlessness, Israel fasted when they were seeking direction. Nehemiah, when he was preparing a trip back to Israel. Esther, when God's people were threatened with extermination. Daniel fasted on numerous occasions. The people of Nineveh, including the cattle, involuntarily, no doubt, fasted. In the New Testament, Jesus fasted when he was in preparation for his public ministry. The early church would fast when they were sending out missionaries or appointing church leaders. Paul, the spiritual giant, to quote him, said that he fasted often. In church history, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, David Brainerd, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, E.M. Bounds, Andrew Murray, all wrote journals about how powerful fasting was in their life. There's biblical precedent. There's church historical precedent for fasting. When we're desperate, we fast. If you don't fast, it's clear you don't have a longing and everything is okay for you. When really fasting is born of desperation and a longing for God to break in and change me. We're going to look at some of the Old Testament passages today um, and, and kind of close it out for today with just Old Testament. And then we'll see kind of how the schedule works out to maybe look at some New Testament ones when we get back from Nepal. But in Judges chapter 20, verse 26, the Judges, it's the dark ages of Israel's history, uh, a Benjamite, um, a man rather traveling in uh, the country of Benjamin or the, the area of the tribe of Benjamin had his concubine severely 
um, abused and killed. And so uh, as a message to the rest of Israel, he ended up like quartering her up and shipping her off to the other parts of Israel so they could see what a horrible thing Benjamin did to his concubine. It's odd, I know, like don't do the math yet, okay? Um, But the rest of Israel was enraged that Benjamin had done such a wicked thing, the men of Benjamin, and that the tribe of Benjamin was not um, executing judgment on these wicked men. And so they, the rest of Israel went to war against this one small tribe in the south of Israel. And the interesting thing is if you're in Judges chapter 20, uh, in verse 18, Israel prays about going into battle against Benjamin. And the Lord says, sure, go for it. And they end up losing thousands of people and losing to this one tribe by verse 23 they pray again should we go up and and attack benjamin and this time they wept you know so prayer is good prayer and weeping is great right um and yet they went up to battle again and they lost again but by verse 26 they prayed and they fasted and they ended up winning In Judges chapter 20, verse 26, all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They sat there before the Lord and they fasted that day until evening and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. Um, And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before in those days saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother Benjamin or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the children of Israel destroyed that day 25,100 Benjamites, all these who drew the sword. So maybe there's something going on in your life that, man, I've prayed about it. And I just still don't have victory, or I still don't have direction, or I still don't have guidance, or I still seem to be losing, but I prayed. It's good. I prayed and I cried. That's good. But maybe the Lord wants you to move into some more desperation. Pray and cry and fast. And that is oftentimes an open door or a key. When they were fasting and praying, God spoke and gave the victory. And uh, another, you know, there's so many passages. I referenced many of them. Another one that's just so good for us is uh, the story of Jehoshaphat. In Second Chronicles 20, verse 3. So um, here we see a corporate national prayer and fasting. Basically what was happening was three big nations, all bigger and stronger than Israel, came against Israel. And they were at a place called En Gedi, which is like a desert waterfall area, kind of an oasis, very close to Jerusalem. And it looked like they were just going to come and wipe out Judah. Jehoshaphat was in a fearful state, and so he set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast. He's going to call for all of Judah to fast, and this is going to lead to one of the greatest victories in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 23, and Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord and from the cities of Judah. They came to seek the Lord. Now we're jumping down to verse 12. We're going to start halfway through verse 12. And they cry out a prayer during their fast where they say, we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. I'll tell you what, this is one of my favorite prayers. This is one of the verses that has led me and my wife and my family and our ministry for years when we just got nothing. And we know that we're surrounded on every side and we don't know what to do. Anybody ever been there? Just in your life, at your work situation, family struggles, just sin. I'm just surrounded. I'm drowning and I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. What a prayer, huh? And so uh, let me find my spot here. Eyes are on you. Verse 13, now all Judah with their little ones, their wives, their children stood before the Lord. Kind of helps you understand what ages should fast and be a part of the prayer. 
right? Include everybody. And then the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, a prophet. In verse 15, he said, listen, all you Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude for the battle is not yours, but God's tomorrow go down against them. Verse 17 says, you will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourself, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. You guys, I just sense this is a word for people in this room. You guys, man, I know enough to know that the human life is tough and that many of you are walking in it and you're surrounded on every side. You don't know what to do. And the word that's been for Lindsay and I so often in these times is you know what? The battle isn't yours. It's the Lord's. Come and position yourself. In this week of prayer and fasting, (laughs) the word is you won't even have to fight in this battle. Watch me do it. And I am telling you, in some of the toughest situations that I've had, this has been a word from the Lord for me. And the Lord has gone before me and taken care of it. In every aspect, in every way imaginable. And I believe that that is something that is just such a word of hope for you here today. That if you'll come seek the Lord and just position yourself and worship in prayer and desperation for the Lord, you won't even have to fight it. You won't have to open your mouth. You won't have to write the letter. The Lord is going to work it out. And in the story, they end up having uh, the worship band go out in the front of the army towards the battle. And verse 21 says, when he consulted the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness. That's the worship band. They got to go out in the front and they went out before the army and were saying, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. Now, when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who'd come against Judah and they were defeated. So the Lord went out, the Lord set the ambushes. They didn't even have to fight. They just worshiped. And it says later on in the chapter that it took three days to gather all of the plunder from this battle. The Lord fought the battle and the Lord brought the plunder. In Ezra, we see two things in Ezra chapter eight, verse 21. It says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before God to seek from him the right way for us, our little ones, and all our possessions. And so fasting is a great way to, number one, humble yourself. You see it there in verse 21, humble ourselves before God. So we, we always spend a special time during our fast humbling ourselves, cries of humbling. And the second thing we see in Ezra eight twenty one is that fasting is a means of receiving direction for our lives. We want to seek from him, 821 there, the right way for us and for our little ones and for all of our possessions. So are you thinking of selling your house? Are you thinking of buying a house? Are you thinking of selling a car, buying a car? You know, for Lindsay and I, it's been a practice that we spend time fasting and praying before we make big decisions, before Lindsay uh, quit her job and started a business. We spent time fasting and praying over that. When we were determining if we were going to have another child, we spent time fasting and praying over that. Uh, When we uh, bought our house, when we were moving to Prineville, or we didn't know where at the time, fasting and praying, and God has gone before us in all of these different ways and has provided in such a way that we always have a testimony of his grace and his glory. It's just a wonderful story of what God has done rather than just jumping on into it and doing it in our own strength and our own wisdom and not really seeking God for these things. Piper says about the Ezra 8 situation that they were hungry enough for God's leading that they wanted to say it with their hunger of their bodies and not just with the hunger of their hearts. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah was given favor by King Artaxerxes to restore or rebuild the wall. He was also given the resources for it. And Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 1, we're going to look at it at the end here soon. Revival will end up coming through fasting in Nehemiah's day. 
in Esther's day, in Esther chapter 4, to set it up, Haman the Agathite convinced King Ahasuerus that every Hebrew person was to be annihilated and that the Persians should plunder their wealth. Okay, so it's basically the Hitler of the, per- the Medo-Persian Empire uh, arises. And a man, godly man named Mordecai in Esther 4.1 learned of all that had happened. So he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out in the midst of the city, cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province there, the king's command and decree arrived. There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And in the same chapter down in verse 15, Esther told them to tell Mordecai, go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. So she's going on a a heroine rescue mission. Uh, Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Esther's story is one of just inc- incredible heroism, and, uh, and they were in a desperate situation. The Jews were going to be wiped out. And so there was, this, there was a, what's called a total fast, don't eat or don't, and don't drink anything. That's how desperate we are for God to move. Nothing for three days. Let's seek the Lord. And if you know the story, incredible rescue by God for the Jews. In times of great crisis, God's people should fast. In World War II, the king of England called the British to a day of prayer. Two centuries earlier, England was called to what was called a solemn day of prayer and fasting because they were threatened invasion by the French. On Friday, February 8th, 1756, John Wesley wrote this in his journal. The fast was a glorious day, one that London has scarce seen since the restoration. Every church in the city was more than full, and a solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God will hear our prayer, and there will be a lengthening of our tranquility. There's a footnote in Wesley's journal that says, Humility was turned to national rejoicing. For the threat invasion by the French was averted. So how powerful when national crisis lay ahead, the church humbles herself with fasting and prayer. If only the godly respond, they're going to find that God's promise in 2 Chronicles 7.14 holds good. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Arthur Wallace wrote, if there's a local church threatened with discord and division, if spiritual life is waning and worldliness is abounding, if conversions are few and backsliding is frequent, would not this be a time that leaders should call the church to prayer and fasting? I think almost every one of those things is something that we need to seek the Lord for in our church uh, the week before Easter. Um, I'm really rus- uh, rushing through this in, in a good way. Uh, I'm not going to tackle every section of scriptures here, but uh, if you'll just write down in your notes and take a note of uh, Isaiah chapter 58 verses 3 through 11, um, and it's verse 6 through 9 that I just want to touch on for the sake of time, where Isaiah says, is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. So any of that apply to anybody's life here. They need the Lord to move in their midst or in their community's midst. Uh, Verse eight, something we see about fasting. It says, your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And when you call on the Lord, he'll answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Jump down halfway through verse 10. Your light shall dawn in the darkness. Your darkness will be like the noonday. 
The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. And you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. We have seen this in the lives of the people of our body who come to fast, that God just brings revival and life and light into their lives and even in the people around them. We won't read Daniel's accounts for the sake of time, but you go to Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 10, incredible visions and revelation are given to Daniel during times of humbling himself with fasting and prayer. Even to the day that he set the Lord to seek him, the Lord would dispatch angels to come and give revelation to Daniel concerning what he was praying about. Uh, And so it's Daniel's a great example of how fasting uh, will lead to the Lord speaking to us. Um, Zechariah 7, 5 shows us that the most important reason for fasting is to worship the Lord. And he's worthy of it. And Zechariah, say to all the peoples of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seven months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? And so as we go forward and we get about three weeks here to, uh, uh, to just spend some time with the Lord um, and to, to say, Lord, how would you have me be a part of this fast? And I've got all these things that I need you to break through in my life and in my friends and neighbors. And, and, and it's just at the end of the day, it's for the Lord. It's for the glory of the Lord. It's for intimacy with the Lord. Joel chapter 2 verse 12 is a great trumpet call for people to come together to fast. Okay. I was just, can you feel it? Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning. So rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. And who knows if he'll turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Okay. Consecrate a fast. That's what we're doing. All right. Mark out Passion Week for fasting. All right. Call a sacred assembly, 6 a.m., noon, 6 p.m. I don't care if you want to or not, all right? This is a sacred assembly. Let's come before the Lord. Let's let him move in our hearts. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children. Oh, kids, they can't fast. They can't, you know, even be here. Just get over there. Children's ministry down there is for you, you know? No, wait, get them in here. Let them see what it's like when dad's, Lord, I need you. I don't remember much, but I remember my dad crying out for the grace of God and starving me for a week. That was just, okay. All right. Oh, I've got nursing babes. Perfect. You're in the Bible, Joel chapter two, bring the baby. All right, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. How desperate are you? How desperate are you for the state of gospel proclamation in this world when only half of the world has heard about Jesus? I'm good, I'm gonna skip the fast this year. The world needs Jesus. People are going to hell and no one's going to him. Guys, we gotta send out workers into the harvest field. But before that, Jesus says, pray that the Lord would send out workers to the harvest field. Guys, we've got a nation that hates itself. And we're a part of it. I mean, we are right there with it, hating other people in our nation. We, we can join England's example and fast and pray for our election this year that God's will be done. We can fast and pray for the state of the unborn. We can fast and pray for the coronavirus. Are you scared? Go to the Lord for fasting and prayer. You got a child that's backslidden? Are you backslidden? How desperate are you? Do you want to go to hell? Humble yourself before the Lord with fasting and repent of your sin. Come before him in brokenness and let him let your light shine like the noonday that your soul would be like a watered garden. How desperate are you? It's my wedding day. I get it. But you know what? 
There's things going on that even on a wedding day, it would be a good time to, you know, not have breakfast and go to prayer. Even bring the bride out from her wedding chambers. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Man, Joel chapter 2 is happening right now. The trumpet is being blown and a sacred assembly is being called. And you know what's interesting? It's really weird to be teaching this like three weeks before the fast or four weeks. I don't know. I haven't counted the weeks down. You can do that, right? I just get there as we get there. Whoa, it's this week? Oh. Um, but that you have weeks to be praying about this. And in those weeks, you get to be down here prepping the ground through prayer during the Nepal prayer times. It's like the Lord is like harrowing the ground and plowing the ground and disking the ground and tilling the ground for the seeds that he's going to plant and water during that time. And so, yes, it's not a bad thing to say, man, uh, you know, coffee, I'm going to fast from Starbucks or energy drinks. I'm going to fast from the news and Facebook and social media and my smartphone and phone calls and texting. I do a fast of silence. Amen. Praise God. Do that. Um, I'm going to fast from music, whatnot. And you know what? If you got medical conditions, first of all, you got three weeks to go talk to your doctor. If you're on medications and things and just say, we're going to be doing a fast. What's wisdom for me? But you can also be led like with your health and those kinds of things. Like, you know, maybe we're just going to fast breakfast and lunch or just breakfast. Or maybe I'm just going to do a one day. The cool thing is that you get to be led by the Holy Spirit of what this looks for you. I say the big thing is we're gathering to pray and cry out to the Lord. So be here. Don't miss it. Don't get robbed. I had a really good friend that just decided he wasn't going to come to any of the times of prayer and fasting. And when I told him what God did, he says, I totally missed out. Totally missed out. And so I would say, be here. Number two, be prayerful and led by the Lord of what that fast looks like. I'd start out saying, I'm going no food for five days. That's my, that's first goal. Like, Lord, here I am, no food, five days. If you're in a super desperate case right now, I, I would encourage you to consider three days, no food, no water. How desperate are you? Okay. No food, no water. And just go to the Lord with that and watch him move. But overall, man, let's try for that five day. Or maybe you're just like, man, this, that safety on the job or whatnot. Maybe it's just breakfast, lunch, you'll eat dinner. Or something along those lines. But be prayerful. Consider it. Talk with your spouse. Come talk to me. I'll maybe help you work through what it'll look like in your life. And we'll have the worship team come up and close us with a song as we look at Nehemiah chapter 9, just the three verses here. It was the 24th day of the month. The children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. And those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another-fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. You know, something that's been really incredible is these times of fasting. Uh, within the period, we've read through the whole New Testament one year. Just all together, we read... Go in a circle. Everyone reads 15 verses. The entire New Testament. Some people have never read through the whole New Testament. And we'd worship and we'd pray in response to the word. And we'd confess our sins and we'd cry out for the Lord. We've read through the whole New Testament. We've read through the epistles of Paul. We've read and meditated the book of Revelation one year. One year we read and meditated in the book of Acts. One year we read Genesis through the book of Ruth. One year we did nothing but pray. And we're going to seek the Lord as to what this year's time is but a lot of times we're in the word kids are reading the scriptures we're praying and worshiping and responding to the word it's an exciting thing and we come expectant for god to move final quote before we get into the uh, worship final song and i love this from spurgeon our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed Never have heaven's gates been higher. Never have our hearts been nearer to the central glory. And I just believe that. That's If my heart could echo that to you, these days of fasting and prayer at Calvary have always been high days indeed. It's like a holiday. 
It's like New Year's. It sets the tone for our year. And you guys, we, I was looking through some journal notes from fasts in the past, fasts in the past. One year, we were praying that God would give us direction for the building. That was actually multiple years. We needed to know from the Lord which direction to go with the building. And, uh, and the Lord opened up. Fasting and prayer was a big part of coming into and purchasing this building. Uh, and so it's just incredible to just see God has done it. We never had to shove the door open or make this. We just were like along for the ride and watching the Lord move. Uh, I have in my notes when I was crying out for God to do a missionary work in our church and that he would send out teams from our church to be going. And I didn't even know what that meant really, but I knew that there was something longing in my heart for more missionary work in our church. And, uh, and our journeys to Nepal are a direct result. Even the open doors with our organization, if, if we could have coffee and I could tell you all about it, it's because of prayer and fasting. God heard the cry of our heart and opened up the doors and so much more.